Hey there all you cool cats and kittens and welcome back to another episode of Best in Sass, where each week we take you behind the scenes for conversations with some of Silicon Valley's best and brightest operators and investors. Crack a beer, get comfortable, and join us on our quest to find the patterns and playbooks that accelerate the sprint to 10 million of that good stuff, that repeatable stuff, that stuff we call ARR. Awesome. Well, this is going to be really fun. I'm excited to have uh, Brian Balfour on the show. He, he basically needs no introduction, but uh, he's the CEO at Reforge, founder at Reforge, previously was a VP of growth at HubSpot, co-founded four companies before that, um, and is an investor and advisor to more companies than I could possibly name, but I'm sure we're about to talk about a bunch of those. So Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I want us to dive straight in. I, I know that you're out there constantly talking about growth and the future of growth, um, but I thought it might be interesting to apply this through the lens of some of the companies that you've advised and invested in over mm-hmm. the to- over time, and just kind of like what what are the most common? If we go to start off with like the most common mistakes that you see these companies making when you're first kind of ramping up on what they're doing and where you're gonna add value or coach some advice, um, what, are, what are the most common things you're seeing in these you know, really best-in-class startups that are going to grow, but but they're making certain mistakes initially? Yeah, I think the um, the hard part is like what I would call this like transition phase. Um, if you're thinking about a SaaS company, it's typically between the, I don't know, somewhere between the 1 and 15 million um, kind of ARR mark on the consumer side of the business, it's like a little bit different. And so um, broadly, the way that I think about kind of the growth of the business is it kind of goes through uh, three main growth phases. There's kind of the initial um, traction phase. um, There's this transition phase. And on the other side of the transition phase is kind of what I broadly labeled growth. But um, what you can, the way to think about it is that you're uh, essentially like how you grow through each phase is, is fundamentally different. So through the through the traction phase is uh, you're primarily growing through what um, at Reforge we call linear like linear tactics or linear methods. These are things that um, they're kind of like kindling to the fire, and uh, they help kind of get things going, but they are typically not scalable whatsoever. They're quick to do. They're very targeted. Um, they might be cheap to do. They're scrappy. Uh, like all, all these types of things, you know, and, and they really like help you get to like that first million in revenue. Um, but to truly grow over time and to kind of sustain the fire, uh, you need a broader strategy that is um, where the foundation is uh, in what we call reports called growth loops. They're, they're these self-reinforcing mechanisms and cycles that basically act as um, and create kind of compounding growth. And so we always give the most common examples of these growth loops on the consumer side of the business is like the Pinterest content model where a new user comes in, they pin and contribute more content, that content gets indexed, creates more, creates more users and so on and so forth. On the B2B side, there's all sorts of loops like from SurveyMonkey's loop, uh, uh, people sending out surveys and then coming into Sur- SurveyMonkey and sending more surveys, but there's a bunch of these different types of growth loops. Um, but the tricky part with growth loops is that they're really hard to get started. And um, as I mentioned, they kind of act as like compound interest. 
And so, of course, compound interest on a small principle doesn't actually yield you that much, right? And so that's kind of the whole purpose of linear tactics is that you build up this momentum, this principle, this kindling to the fire so that you're able to transition to the loops and um, and then the loops kind of sustain, uh, are more sustainable and higher ceiling things on 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 going. So from a strategy perspective, the, the biggest mistakes kind of within the context of this framework are one is that people stay in um, linear tactics too long. It's kind of the what got me here will get me there kind of false false methodology. And uh, and so rather than viewing all of these linear tactics in service of some grander and, gro- and broader purpose. And so most of the time when I go into a company that is at that million stage or that or, or even kind of lower, I ask them kind of, hey, like, well, how, how does your product grow? Like, what is your hypothesis of how it how it kind of gets to that $10 million mark. I'm not looking for them to actually be executing on those things yet, but they have to have that kind of idea of the destination in mind, right? So that um, so that they're doing these kind of linear tactics in service of, of, of the broader picture. So most of the time that picture isn't there. They, they actually have no idea what they are working towards. And as a result, they'll end up like hitting a ceiling. I do see a little bit of the reverse sometimes, um, uh, which is, more from like the more experienced or the people who have like operated more in later stage environments, which is like, they're not doing the linear stuff. They're just kind of thinking about thinking about the loops and the self-reinforcing cycle. But once again, like, you know, if you're just working on the loops and you're, and you're trying to generate like an interest rate off of a very small principle, like that's not going to actually help you grow <laughs> either. Right. And so, <laughs> so you need to be doing the linear tactics. And so this transition rate is really hard. This also manifests in the people perspective. People screw up their first growth hire so much, right? Like you've probably seen this, like they're probably had people on your show probably talk about this. There's probably a bunch of people listening. who've probably been through like two or three growth hires already. And a lot of it has to do with this, this like whole thing, which is, um, which is that people actually don't have a true concept or a true hypothesis about how their product is going to grow. And therefore, like, where is, um, Where's their biggest lever? What is the biggest part of that growth model and that growth motion? So what this leads them to do instead, what it leads founders to do instead is is a couple different things. They either, one, they hire kind of what I would call um, uh, like just like a, uh, a generalist that has never been an expert. So there's a lot of these people I've seen out there that have jumped from startup to startup. They've dibbled and dabbled in all sorts of different types of like growth channels or growth uh, mechanisms, but they've never really gone deep on one. And so what these people are typically pretty good at is like getting kind of the linear stuff going, um, but uh, really don't help you kind of transition to like the bigger picture. Um, and, and or the second mistake that I see founders make is that they overhire, right? They overhire for uh, people, the senior people who do get to see the big, and, and do understand the bigger picture, but uh, they either are no longer good at the IC work that, that is required in this trans- traction and transition phase, right? Or they don't have the motivation to do the IC work, or they're just like, frankly, just crazy expensive and therefore like you're spending way too much. And so my typical recommendation to most companies now is like, one, hire, hire the really experienced person as an advisor. They help you set the direction. They help you figure out what the actual strategy is and where like the biggest levers are. And then they, and then hire like a senior individual contributor 
against that biggest level lever in order to like execute and help you like through these stages. It's typically not until like the very end of the transition phase into the growth phase where you really want to hire that truly experienced person as a, a full-time person. But it's so often to get this like to get this uh, wrong in so many phases. I've seen so many companies in my own portfolio and stuff um, get this wrong. And as a result, they kind of just churn through a few different people through a few different growth strategies, kind of takes them a lot of, you know, weaving to kind of get to, to the ultimate destination. So I'd love to get specific with a couple of examples. I mean, you've invested in a ton of companies uh, or advise them like Drift, Loom and Pipeify. Maybe could you walk us through each of those companies and some of the things that they maybe weren't doing perfectly initially and, and some of the big growth levers that they uncovered ultimately to lead to the growth they've seen? Yeah, I think um, so. For those of you who don't know, like Pipeify, um, uh, Pipeify was started by this uh, amazing um, Brazilian uh, founder called, um, his name is Alessio. And Pipeify is like, the best way I can explain it is essentially if you took like uh, Zapier plus Google Docs plus Trello and it had a baby, um, like that's what you'd get out of Pipeify. And so what people are doing is they create all of these like custom internal tools, uh, things like um, hiring pipeline management tools, sales process management tools, all that, all that kind of stuff. It's like kind of customized, like process management um, sort of work. So I think in the early days um, when, where we really focused on it was, um, was kind of walking through the exercise that I just um, sort of mentioned, which was like, okay, like, what are you doing now? What is your hypothesis um, kind of going forward? Like how, what is this in service to? And as a result, Kind of what um, are the biggest constraints on the on that growth model, and where should we be focusing as as a team? And so the team was doing an excellent job at kind of those linear tactics. I don't even remember what the linear tactics were that they were doing, but it was growing. the The business was getting um, an amazing amount of traction, and uh, they even had like a lot of organic coming in. But there wasn't a lot of knowledge of like why that organic was coming in. And why a lot of that organic, uh, those users coming in weren't necessarily activating um, on the product. And so as we talked about it, what we were, what the company was really working towards is that, hey, a lot of these like process uh, management things are very collaborative in nature. So very clearly, there is a long term strategy there of very organic growth loops where somebody kind of creates some sort of process. And part of the process is like inviting or collaborating another person into the product, like into that process. And that of course kind of um, self-fulfills like in a loop going on. And they were already starting to see the effects of this. But the problem that they were seeing is just like, these people weren't activating very much. And um, as a result, we had a really kind of, we had a, like a whole like strategy discussion of why activation is, such a, is going to be such a critical lever for them long-term. The reason is, is like Pipeify is like a horizontal tool, like Airtable or anything else that can be used for a million different things. And so as a result, a horizontal tool, like the pro of it is that it can be used for a million different things, right? But the con of it is that it can be used for a million different things. And as a result, it's much harder for a new user to understand what they should use the tool exactly for. And so this is kind of where like we did a bunch of strategies around creating a bunch of templates to start off from. How do you understand 
what templates are most applicable to what role? How do we figure out what templates might be most applicable from just very little amounts of information from that user? And how do we kind of fast forward them to getting them to understand like what use case or thing that they could use the product for, which then feeds those collaborative growth loops and like self-fulfills the cycle. Uh, and so that ended up being like the choke point in that um, in that fault. Company's doing super well today. I don't think I have permission to give out public numbers, but um, the company is like growing incredibly nicely, um, has have gotten some amazing funding from Insight, I believe. I might I should probably know that by heart, but uh, but yeah, company's doing a lot of, just doing very well. All right, let's talk about Loom next. Uh, I mean, they they in theory, this is a product that already existed in the market. Is it's existed in various different forms over time. Um, and yet, you know, Loom in particular has has kind of rocketed recently. So really curious, you know, when you stepped in, same thing, beginning state, what were the things that needed work? And, and then where have they seen breakthrough success? Yeah, well, the story is actually pretty similar in Loom's case because they're also a horizontal tool. <laughs> a horizontal tool with a bunch of content and, and sharing loops where like, I'll record. So for those of you who are out there, Loom is basically an asynchronous like video communication tool. So rather than writing like a massive email or a massive Slack message, I don't, it's going to take me a ton of time. And like one click can start recording a, a, a Loom video and send it to somebody. So kind of pre-COVID, right, it was an amazing thing. Um, like the, the, the early traction a lot was from um, remote teams or hybrid remote teams, especially those like with different time zones where... You know, video just is a much more expressive um, communication channel than than just than just writing. And so, very similarly, they 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 got off to uh, um, they got off to a great start by like um, being known as one of these tools for like in kind of like the remote uh, in kind of the remote way. They got you know um, some good press and all, all sorts of things from that. Um, but the main driver of the growth motion in that product is, of course, uh, me recording the video sending it to you or a group of people, you kind of seeing kind of in interacting with that Loom video and then deciding to become like a user yourself. So very natural growth motion. But once again, can be used for a million different things, right? I could use it for sales. I could use it for customer support. I could use it for um, executive communication, internal, like it could just be used for a variety of bug reporting, right? Like, and so same thing is like um, the big challenge and the big, chokehold there like early on is, is, well, how do we get the user to understand exactly what they can use it for based off of collecting like a very small amount of information? Now, the reason they've been in such the news and stuff is that they're one of the lucky companies, I would say, that has caught a major tailwind, right, in the times of, in the times of COVID with more and more companies having, you know, to go remote. Um, they were already kind of part of that conversation. And so uh, like, all of this, the COVID stuff has basically just poured a massive amount of, of fuel on that fire. And in, you know, going back to that linear versus loop conversation, right? Like just, just kind of just dumped a ton of kindling, <laughs> kindling onto the fire and, and like really kind of increasing that, like that principle that that compound interest from the loops can, can work off of. So, um, so, you know, part of their growth success is not just because of like they're getting a temporary massive surge in, in users, but um, they're getting that in combination with like the compound interest that they're already getting 
um, from the product. But once you kind of identify these loops and these like chokeholds, that's where you can just basically say, okay, like let's put an entire team on this specific point within our growth model and just have them hammer at it, iterate at it um, as much as they can. And so uh, that could be like in Loom's case, just getting them to like record and share um, their first video. It might be um, getting them to transition to a one-to-one communication use case to a one-to-many use case, which is ultimately like more viral. Um, It could be like a number of these different choke points or friction points within the model um, but like once you identify them, you can just kind of start start knocking them down and, and you see kind of the whole system kind of compounding itself. So that segues nicely into a larger company, Drift, where, you know, they're at a much later stage as far as development and revenue and their growth muscle presumably is much more mature at this point. How How do you then go in and coach kind of the shift into, like you just mentioned a second ago, now you have growth teams perhaps dedicated to a specific motion or specific you know, lever. Um, at that point, you know, Drift is inherently viral in the sense that, well, viral might not be the right word, but like, it, everyone knows when someone is using Drift because it's very you know, publicly present. So the obvious levers there ha- are pulled automatically. How do, you, how do you kind of stress test the system and push it further when when the obvious easy things are, are done already and the company's mature. Yeah, to be fully honest, like um, I, I did a little bit of advising for Drift in the very early days, but not so much kind of like the past couple of years. But I'm familiar with kind of the growth motion there because they're essentially running a very similar playbook that HubSpot did. Um, and uh, that playbook was uh, essentially, um, is essentially kind of, Take a proven, um, take take essentially a proven piece of software or that that somebody is using. Um, define a category around it, uh, and as you and then if you evangelize the category, you basically uh, um, you're like creating the ocean yourself. So like it's not like on-site live chat was like something that Drift invented. Like that had been around for I don't know how many I don't know how many years, right? But it had been around for years, it, certainly. But I think the brilliant thing that Drift did, and a lot of credit goes to um, their former VP of marketing, like David David Gerhart and uh, that whole team, was that um, they defined a whole like category around it, uh, which was kind of this conversational marketing category. And as part of that, like not only do you help kind of an existing audience understand like its entire use, but you're essentially um, creating you you create new audience with it. And because you've created the category, you are basically the center of that world. It basically attracts users to you. And um, and they did that. They evangelized that, obviously, through a very similar playbook that HubSpot did with inbound marketing, um, through the use of combining um, content with um, a bunch of different types of sales loops. Drift does have a little bit of a growth motion in them, a little bit of a product-led growth motion in them where you put it, um, you put it on your site. There's Drift branding on it. People get exposed to the Drift branding um, and then typically end up on Drift site. They either kind of type it directly into the to, to their browser bar or into search and become users themselves. Um, there is definitely a little bit of a compounding growth loop there. But the core of that growth model, it was really about how do you like define this category, use this category to give you sort of that principle and create the ocean for you. And then 
Um, you use kind of all the playbooks from like Mark Roberge and other brilliant people uh, to essentially kind of capitalize on that that ocean that you've created, converted convert that ocean into like your own customers. Um, but it's interesting, like the interesting part of creating a category is that um, you typically have a bunch of other software products start to attach to the category itself, which sometimes is seen as like a negative thing. But ultimately, they're just kind of reinforcing the category. And as long as, once again, you're the center of that universe, it ultimately ends up being a like massively net positive um, thing for you, uh, like in, in the end versus kind of what you would be without having having created that category. So very, very different playbook from um, like some of the other from some of the other companies. And that category creation is way more important in like a software space that um, ultimately ends up feeling more commoditized. Like obviously uh, HubSpot did it within the marketing automation category, which already had like 10 million players, but the fact that they wrapped a category around it in a specific philosophy and message is kind of really what drove the, drove the growth of that company. Got it, interesting. So, um... You know, one thing I always love to ask as we wind these interviews down is you've had an amazing career so far and, and it only continues to impress and gain steam. Who are some of the folks who helped you get to where you are, whether they were mentors or even peers who have been inspirational or anything like that? Yeah, I think the main person is this guy named Russell Glass. Um, he's the uh, CEO at a mental health company called Ginger now, um, but he... Uh, he was a founder of a company called Bizzo, which sold the LinkedIn. But before that, he was VP of product at this company called ZoomInfo. And uh, Russ kind of, uh, he, I was writing this blog when, when like in 2005 or something like that, when blogging wasn't that popular on social networks. And he hired me because of the blog. And this was when like hiring somebody based off of their, their blog was like a like just batshit crazy. <laughs> um, but he, but he took, uh, he like, he like took a bet on me and, um, and was like a phenomenal, uh, not just a good manager for me at zoom info, but has been an advocate for me throughout my entire career. So, um, even like a year into zoom info, I got plugged into the Boston entrepreneurial scene. I had this idea. It started to get a little bit of traction with investor combos. And, you know, as my boss, he could have very much been like, discouraged me from it or not been helpful but instead he like introduced me to a bunch of other investors and was like a huge testimonial for me and it helped me get that like first round of funding and so um he's definitely been somebody and i think like finding those true advocates for you in your career are uh it's just really hard it's incredibly rare to find that person that just like believes in you wholesale that they just go out on the limb for you and actually not just like help guide you, but they create opportunities for you, right? Like those two things are like a massive difference. Um, and so uh, I think um, one of the executives in residence at Reforge right now is uh, Bengali Kaba. Uh, he was the former head of growth at Instagram. And he had a very similar, we were talking about this one, they had a very similar story uh, at his time at Facebook, uh, which then helped him get the head of growth job on the, on the Instagram product, which is that, he just ultimately like tells people just to optimize for for a manager above above all else because once again if you if you find that advocate that believer they just like end up like returning just like a, a just in, a, like an asymmetric amount of value 
um, in like in your career. They can they can move mountains for you uh, in ways that like like having like uh, like a title or more resources or like whatever whatever the other components of your job are um, are. And so um, yeah, Russ has been kind of like the main you know kind of been the main person for me throughout my career. But of course along the way there's been um, I've had awesome co-founders of my past companies and um, kind of um, even now at Reforge, like uh, we have this EIR program where we rotate in um, temp- like these amazing executives from, from companies for temporary periods of time, six to nine months. And I just feel like, uh, yeah, like every six months I get exposure to an amazing new set of, of knowledge. So, um, uh, but, but those have been kind of like the primary people in my career along the way. Awesome. Amazing. Well, Brian, this has been so uh, so inspirational, and there's so many actionable things for our audience to sit down and think about with their own businesses. Um, so thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me.